Section 3 of The Golden Bough, Part 3 The Dying God by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2, Part 2 Kings Killed When Their Strength Fails. Divine Kings Put to Death, the Chitomi of Congo. But it is with the death of the God-man, the divine king or priest, that we are here especially concerned. The mystic kings of fire and water in Cambodia are not allowed to die a natural death. Hence, when one of them is seriously ill, and the oldest think that he cannot recover, they stab him to death. The people of Congo believed, as we have seen, that if their pontiff, the Chitomi, were to die a natural death, the world would perish, and the earth, which he alone sustained by his power and merit, would immediately be annihilated. Accordingly, when he fell ill and seemed likely to die, the man who was destined to be his successor entered the pontiff's house with a rope or a club and strangled or clubbed him to death. A fuller account of this custom is given by an old Italian writer as follows. Let us pass to the death for the magicians, who often die a violent death, and that for the most part voluntarily. I shall speak only of the head of this crew, from whom his followers take example. He is called Ganga Chitome being reputed god of the earth. The first fruits of all the crops are offered to him as his due, because they are thought to be produced by his power, and not by nature at the bidding of the Most High God. This power he boasts he can impart to others, when and to whom he pleases. He asserts that his body cannot die a natural death, and therefore, when he knows he is near the end of his days, whether it is brought about by sickness or age, or whether he is deluded by the demon, he calls one of his disciples to whom he wishes to communicate his power in order that he may succeed him. And having made him tie a noose to his neck, he commands him to strangle him or to knock him on the head with a great cudgel and kill him. His disciple obeys and sends him a martyr to the devil to suffer torments with Lucifer in the flames forever. This tragedy is enacted in public in order that his successor may be manifested, who have the power of fertilizing the earth, the power having been a part of him by the deceased. Otherwise, so they say, the earth would remain barren, and the world would perish. O oh, too great foolishness and palpable blindness of the Gentiles, to enlighten the eyes of whose mind there would need to be the very hand of Christ, whereby he opened the bodily eyes of him that had been born blind. I know that in my time one of these magicians was cast into the sea, another into a river, a mother put to death with a son, and many more seized by our orders and banished. Ethiopian Kings of Mero The Ethiopian kings of Mero were worshipped as gods, but whenever the priests chose, they sent a messenger to the king, ordered him to die, and alleging an oracle of the gods as their authority for the command. This command the king always obeyed down to the reign of Ogamenes a contemporary of Ptolemy II, king of Egypt. Having received a Greek education, which emancipated him from the superstitions of his countrymen, Ergamenes ventured to disregard the command of the priests and entered the golden temple with a body of soldiers, put the priests to the sword. Kings of Versoko on the Blue Nile Customs of the same sort appear to have prevailed in this region down to modern times. Thus we are told, that in Fasokul, a district in the valley of the Blue Nile, to the west of Abyssinia, it was customary as late as the middle of the 19th century to hang a king who was no longer beloved. His relatives and ministers assembled round him, and announced that, as he no longer pleased the men, the women, the asses, the oxen, and the fowls of the country, it was better he should die. Once on a time when a king was unwilling to take the hint, his own wife and mother urged him so strongly not to disgrace himself by disregarding the custom that he submitted to his fate and was strung up in the usual way. In some tribes of Fasokul, the king had to administer justice daily under a certain tree. If from sickness or any other cause he was unable to discharge this duty for three whole days, he was hanged on the tree in a noose, which contained two razors so arranged that when the noose was drawn tight by the weight of the king's body, they cut his throat. At Fezoglau, an annual festival, which partook of the nature of a Saturnalia, 
was preceded by a formal trial of the king in front of his house. The judges were the chief men of the country. The king sat on his royal stool during the trial, surrounded by armed men who were ready to carry out a sentence of death. A little way off a jackal and a dog were tied to a post. The conduct of the king during his year of office was discussed, complaints were heard, and if the verdict was unfavourable, the king was executed and his successor chosen from among the members of his family. But if the monarch was acquitted, the people at once paid their homage to him afresh, and the dog or the jackal was killed in his stead. This custom lasted down to the year 1837 or 1838, when King Yasin was thus condemned and executed. His nephew Asusa was compelled under threats of death to succeed him in the office. Afterwards, it would seem that the death of the dog was regularly accepted as a substitute for the death of the king. At least this may be inferred from a later account of the pharisaical practice, which runs thus. The meaning of another of their customs is quite obscure. At a certain time of the year, they have a kind of carnival, where everyone does what he likes best. Four ministers of the king then bear him on an ankareb out of his house to an open space of ground. The dog is fastened by a long cord to one of the feet of the ankareb. The whole population clicks round the place, streaming in on every side. They then throw darts and stones at the dog till he is killed, at which the king is again born into his house. Shalik Custom of Putting Divine Kings to Death A custom of putting their divine kings to death at the first symptoms of infirmity or old age prevailed until lately. If indeed, it is even now extinct and not merely dormant. Among the Shalik of the White Nile, and recent years it has been carefully investigated by Dr. C. G. Seligman, to whose reaches I am indebted for the following detailed information on the subject. The Shiloka are a tribe or nation who inhabit the long narrow fringe of territory on the western bank of the White Nile from Kaka to the north to Lake No in the south, as well as a strip on the eastern bank of the river which stretches from Feshoda to Tofikia and for some 35 miles to the Sobat River. The country of the Sherlock is almost entirely in grass. Hence, the principal wealth of the people consists in their flocks and herds. But they also grow a considerable quantity of the space of millet, which is known as Dura. But though the Sherlock are mainly a pastoral people, they are not nomadic, but live in many settled villages. The tribe at present numbers about 40,000 souls and is governed by a single king, Ret, whose residence is at Fashoda. His subjects take great care of him and hold him in much honour. In the old days his word was law, and he was not suffered to go forth to battle. At the present day he still keeps up considerable state and exercises much authority. His decisions in all matters brought before him are readily obeyed, and he never moves without a bodyguard of from twelve to twenty men. The Shiluk kings supposed to be reincarnations of Nyakang the semi-divine founder of the dynasty. The reverence which the Sherlock paid to their king appears to arise chiefly from the conviction that he is a reincarnation of the spirit of Nyakang, the semi-divine hero who founded the dynasty and settled the tribe in their present territory, to which he is variously said to have conducted them either from the west or from the south. Tradition has preserved the pedigree of the kings from Nyakang to the present day. The number of kings recorded between Naya Kang and the father of the reigning monarch is 20, distributed over 12 generations. But Dr. Seligman is of opinion that many more must have reigned, and that the genealogy of the first six or seven kings as given to him has been much abbreviated. There seems to be no reason to doubt the historical character of all of them. The myths have gathered like clouds round the persons of Naya Kang as immediate successors. The Shiluk about Kodok Fashoda, think of Naya Kang as having been a man in appearance and physical qualities, though unlike his royal descendants of more recent times, he did not die but simply disappeared. His holiness is manifested especially by his relation to the great god of the Shilak, who created man and is responsible for the order of nature. Jok is formless and visible, and like the air, he is everywhere at once. He is far above Naya Kang and men alike, but he is not worshipped directly and it is only through the intercession of Naya Kang, whose favour the Shilak secure by means of sacrifices, that Jok can be induced to send the needed rain for the cattle and the crops. In his character of rain-giver, Naya Kang is a great benefactor of the Shilak, 
Their country, baked by the burning heat of the tropical sun, depends entirely for its fertility on the waters of heaven, for the people do not resort to artificial irrigation. When the rain falls, then the grass sprouts, the millet grows, the cattle thrive, and the people have food to eat. Drought brings famine and death in its train. Naya Kang is said not only to have brought the Shilak into their present land, but to have made them into a nation of warriors, divided the country among them, regulated marriage, and made the laws. The religion of the Shilak at the present time consists mainly of the worship paid to this semi-divine hero, the traditionary ancestor of their kings. There seems to be no reason to doubt that the traditions concerning him are substantially correct. In all probability, he was simply a man whom the superstition of his fellows, his own and subsequent ages, has raised to the rank of deity. The Shrines of Naya Kang No less than ten shrines are dedicated to his worship. The three most famous are at Fashuda, Akurawa, and Fenikang. They consist of one or more huts enclosed by a fence. Generally, there are several huts within the enclosure, one or more of them being occupied by the guardians of the shrine. These guardians are old men, who not only keep the hallowed spots scrupulously clean, but also act as priests, killing the sacrificial victims which are brought to the shrine, sharing the flesh, and taking the skins for themselves. All the shrines of Naya Kang are called graves of Naya Kang, Kango Naya Kang. Though it's well known that nobody is buried there, sacred spears are kept in all of them and are used to slaughter the victims offered in sacrifice at the shrines. The originals of these spears are said to have belonged to Naya Kang, his companions, but they have disappeared and been replaced by others. Annual Rain-Making Ceremony Performed at the Shrines of Naya Kang Two great ceremonies are annually performed at the shrines of Naya Kang. One of them is intended to ensure the fall of rain, the other is celebrated at harvest. At the rain-making ceremony, which is held before the rains at the beginning of the month, Alabor, a bullock is slain with a sacred spear before the door of the shrine, while the king stands by, praying in a loud voice to Naya Kang to send down the refreshing showers on the thirsty land. As much of the blood of the victim as possible is collected in a gourd and thrown into the river, perhaps as a rain charm. This intention of the sacrifice comes out more plainly in a form of the ritual which is said to be observed at Ashok. There the sacrificial bullock is speared high up in the flank, so that the wound is not immediately fatal. Then the wounded animal is allowed, indeed encouraged, to walk to and from the river before it sinks down and dies. In the blood that streams from its sides, on the ground, the people may see a symbol of the looked-for rain. Care is taken not to break the bones of the animal, and they, like the blood, are thrown into the river. At the annual rain-making ceremony, a cow is also dedicated to Naya Kang. He is not killed, but added to the sacred herd of the shrine. Harvest Ceremony of the Shrines of Naya Kang The other great animal ceremony observed at the shrines of Naya Kang falls at harvest. When the millet has been reaped, Everyone brings a portion of the grain to a shrine of Nayakang, where it is ground into flour, which is made into porridge, with water fetched from the river. Then some of the porridge is poured out on to the threshold of the hut, which the spirit of Nayakang is supposed to inhabit. Some of it is smeared on the outer walls of the building, and some of it is emptied out onto the ground outside. Even before harvest, it is customary to bring some of the ripening grain from the fields and to thrust it into the thatch of the huts in the shrines. No doubt in order to secure the blessing of Naya Kang on the crops. Sacrifices are also offered at these shrines for the benefit of sick people. A sufferer will bring or send a sheep to the nearest sanctuary, where the guardians will slaughter the animal with a sacred spear and pray for the patient's recovery. Shiluk kings put to death when they show signs of ill health or failing strength. It is a fundamental article of the Shilak Creed that the spirit of the divine or semi-divine, Naya Kang, is incarnate in the reigning king, who is accordingly himself infested to some extent with the character of a divinity. But while the Shilak hold their kings in high, indeed religious reverence, and take every precaution against their accidental death, nevertheless they cherish the conviction that the king must not be allowed to become ill or senile, lest with his diminishing vigour the cattle should sicken and fail to bear their increase. The crops should rot in the fields, 
and man, stricken with the disease, should die in ever-increasing numbers. To prevent these calamities, it used to be the regular custom with the shillik to put the king to death whenever he showed signs of ill health or failing strength. One of the fatal symptoms of decay was taken to be an incapacity to satisfy the sexual passions of his wives, of whom he has very many, distributed in a large number of houses at Fashoda. When this ominous weakness manifested itself, the wives reported to the chiefs, who are probably said to have intimated to the king his doom by spreading a white cloth over his face and eyes as he lay slumbering in the heat of the sultry afternoon. Execution soon followed the sentence of death. A hut was specially built for the occasion. The king was led into it and laid down with his head resting on the lap of a nubile virgin. The door of the hut was then walled up and the couple were left without food, water or fire to die of hunger and suffocation. This was the old custom. It was abolished some five generations ago on account of the excessive sufferings of one of the kings who perished in this way. He survived his companion for some days, and in the interval was so distressed by the stench of a putrefying body that he shouted to the people whom he could hear moving outside, never going to let a king die in this prolonged and exquisite agony. After a time his cries died away into silence. Death had released him from his sufferings, but since then the Sherlock have adopted a quicker and more merciful mode of executing their kings. What the exact form of execution has been in her later times, Dr. Seligman found it very difficult to ascertain. Though it was regarded to the fact of the execution, he tells us that there is not the least doubt. It is said that the chiefs announced his fate to the king, and that afterwards he is strangled on a hut which has been specially built for the occasion. Shiller kings formerly liable to be attacked and killed at any time by rival claimants to the throne. From Dr. Seligman's inquiries, it appears that not only was the Shiller king liable to be killed with due ceremony at the first symptoms of incipient decay, but even while he was yet in the prime of health and strength, he might be attacked at any time by a rival and have to defend his crown in a combat to the death. According to the common Shiller tradition, any son of a king had the right thus to fight the king in possession and, if he succeeded in killing him, to reign in his stead. As every king had a large harem and many sons, the number of possible candidates for the throne at any time may well have been not inconsiderable, and the reigning monarch must have carried his life in his hand. For the attack on him could only take place with any prospect of success at night, for during the day the king surrounded himself with his friends and bodyguards, an aspirant to the throne could hardly hope to cut his way through them and strike home. It was otherwise at night, for then the guards were dismissed and the king was alone in his enclosure with his favourite wives, and there was no man near to defend him except a few herdsmen whose huts stood a little way off. The hours of darkness were therefore the season of peril for the king. It is said they used to pass them in constant watchfulness, prowling round his huts, fully armed, peering into the blackest shadows, or himself standing silent and alert, like a sentinel on duty, in some dark corner. When at last his rival appeared, the fight would take place in grim silence, broken only by the clash of spears and shields, for it was a point of honour with the king not to call the herdsman to his assistance. When the king did not perish in single combat, but was put to death on the approach of sickness or old age, it became necessary to find a successor for him, Apparently the successor was chosen by the most powerful chiefs from among the princes, Niret, the sons either of the late king or of one of his predecessors. Details as to the mode of election are lacking. So far as Dr. Seligman could ascertain, the king's elect showed no reluctance to accept the fatal sovereignty. Indeed, he was told a story of a man who clamoured to be made king for only one day, saying that he was perfectly ready to be killed after that. The age at which the king was killed would seem to have commonly been between forty and fifty. To the improvident, the unimaginative savage, the prospect of being put to death at the end of a set time, whether long or short, has probably few terrors, and if it has any, we may suspect that they are altogether weighed in his mind by the opportunities for immediate enjoyment of all kinds which a kingdom affords to his unbridled appetites and passions. Ceremonies at the Ascension of a Shilluk King An important part of the solemnities attending the Ascension of a Shilluk King appears to be intended to convey to the new monarch the divine spirit of Naya Kang, 
which has been transmitted from the founder of the dynasty to all his successors on the throne. For this purpose, a sacred four-legged stool and a mysterious object which bears the name of Nayakang himself are brought with much solemnity from the shrine Nayakang at Akurwa to the small village of Kwam near Fashoda, where the king-elect and the chiefs await their arrival. The king called Nayakang is said to be of cylindrical shape, some two or three feet long by six inches broad. The chief Arakua informed Dr. Seligman that the object in question is a rude wooden figure of a man, which was fashioned long ago at the command of Nayakang in person. We may suppose that it represents the divine king himself, and that it is, or was formerly supposed to house his spirit, though the chief Arakua denied to Dr. Seligman that it does so now. Be that as it may, the object plays a prominent part at the installation of a new king. When the men of Akua arrive at Quam with their sacred stool and the image of Nayakang, as we may call it, they engage in a sham fight with the men who are waiting for them with the king-elect. The weapons used on both sides are simple stalks of millet. Being victorious in the mock combat, the men of Akua escort the king to Fashoda, and some of them enter the shrine of Nayakang with the stool. After a short time, they bring the stool forth again and set it on the ground outside of the sacred enclosure. Then the image of Nayakang is placed on the stool. The king-elect holds one leg of the stool, an important chief holds another. The king is surrounded by a crowd of princes and nobles, and near him stand two of his paternal aunts and two of his sisters. After that, a bullock is killed and its flesh eaten by the men of certain families called Ororo, who are said to be descended from the third of the Shilak kings. Then the Akua men carry the image of Nayakang into the shrine, and the Aurora men place the king-elect on the sacred stool, where he remains seated for some time, apparently till sunset. When he rises, the Akua men carry the stool back into the shrine, and the king is escorted to three new huts, where he stays in seclusion for three days. On the fourth night he is conducted quietly, almost stealthily, to his royal residence at Fashoda, and next day he shows himself publicly to his subjects. The three new huts in which he spent his days of his exclusion are then brought up and their fragments cast into the river. The installation of a new king generally takes place about the middle of the dry season, and it is said that the men of Akua tarry at Fashoda with the image of Nayakang till about the beginning of the rains. Before they leave Fashoda, they sacrifice a bullock, and every wadi or bed of a stream that they cross, they kill a sheep. Worship of the Dead Shilak Kings Like Nayakang himself, their founder, each of the Shilak Kings after death is worshipped at a shrine, which is erected over his grave, and the grave of a king is always in the village where he was born. The tomb shrine of a king resembles the shrine of Nayakang, consisting of a few huts enclosed by a fence. One of the huts is built over the king's grave. The others are occupied by the guardians of the shrine. Indeed, the shrines of Nayakang and the shrines of the kings are scarcely to be distinguished from each other, and the religious rituals observed at all of them are identical in form and vary only in matters of detail, the variations being due, apparently, to the far greater sanctity attributed to the shrines of Nayakang. The grave shrines of the kings are attended by certain old men or women, who correspond to the guardians of the shrines of Nayakang. They are usually widows of old men servants of the deceased king, and when they die, they are succeeded in their office by their descendants. Moreover, cattle are dedicated to the grave shrines of the kings, and sacrifices are offered at them, just as at the shrines of Nayakang. Thus, when the millet crop threatens to fail, or a moraine to break out across the cattle, either Nayakang himself or one of his successors on the throne will appear to somebody in a dream and demand a sacrifice. The dream is reported to the king, who therefore at once sends a cow and a bullock to one or more of the shrines of Nayakang. If it was he who appeared in the vision, or to the grave shrine of the particular king who the dream is saw in his dream. The bullock is then sacrificed, and the cow added to the sacred herd belonging to the shrine. Further, the harvest ceremony, which is performed at the shrines of Nayakang, is usually, though not necessarily, performed also at the grave shrines of the kings, and lastly, sick folks send animals to be sacrificed as offerings on their behalf at the shrines of the kings just they send them to the shrines of Nayakang. sick people and others supposed to be possessed by the spirits of the dead shilak kings 
Sick people have, indeed, a special reason for sacrificing to the spirits of the dead kings in the hope of recovery, inasmuch as one of the commonest causes of sickness, according to the Schillick, is the entrance of one of these royal spirits into the body of the sufferer, whose first care, therefore, is to rid himself as quickly as possible of his august but unwelcome guest. Apparently, however, it is only the souls of the early kings who manifest themselves in this disagreeable fashion. Dr. Seligman met with a woman, for example, who had been ill and who attributed her illness to the spirit of Dag, the second of the Shilak kings, which had taken possession of her body. But a sacrifice of two sheep had induced the spirit to quit her, and she wore anklets of beads with pieces of the ears of the sheep strung on them, which she thought would effectually guard her against the danger of being again possessed by the soul of the dead king. Nor is it only in sickness that the souls of dead kings are thought to take possession of the bodies of the living. Certain men and women, who bear the name of Adjuagol, are believed to be permanently possessed by the spirit of one or other of the early kings, and in virtue of this inspiration they profess to heal the sick and to a brisk trade in amulets. The first symptom of possession may take the form of illness or of a dream, from which the sleeper awakes trembling and agitated. A long and complicated ceremony follows to abate the extreme force of the spiritual manifestation of the new medium, for were these to continue in their first intensity, he would not dare to approach his women. But whichever of the dead kings may manifest himself to living, whether in dreams or in the form of bodily possession, his spirit is deemed, at least by many of the Shilluk, to be identical with that of Naikang. They do not clearly distinguish if indeed they distinguished all between the divine spirit of the founder of the dynasty and the latter manifestations in all his royal successors. The principal element in the religion of the Shilluk is the worship of their kings. In general, the principal element in the religion of the Shilluk would seem to be the worship which they pay to their sacred or divine kings, whether dead or alive. These are believed to be animated by a single divine spirit which has been transmitted from the semi-mythical, but probably to substance, historical, founder of the dynasty through all his successors to the present day. Yet the divine spirit, as Dr. Seligman justly observes, is clearly not just of as congenital in the members of the royal house. It is only conveyed to each king on his ascension by means of the mysterious object called Nayakang, which, as Dr. Seligman with great probability conjectures, the Holy Spirit of Nyakang may be supposed to reside. The kings put to death in order to preserve their divine spirit from natural decay, which would sympathetically affect the crops, the cattle, and mankind. Hence, regarding their kings as incarnate divinities, on whom the welfare of men, of cattle, and of the corn implicitly depends, the Shilluk naturally pay them the greatest respect, and take every care of them. And however strange it may seem to us, their custom of putting the divine king to death as soon as he shows sign of ill health or failing strength springs directly from their profound veneration for him and from their anxiety to preserve him, or rather the divine spirit by which he is animated, in the most perfect state of efficiency. Nay, we may go further and say that their practice of redesign is the best proof they can give of the high regard in which they hold their kings. For they believe, as we have seen, that the king's life or spirit is so sympathetically bound up with the prosperity of the whole country that if he fell ill or grew senile, the cattle would sicken and cease to multiply, the crops would rot in the fields, and men would perish of widespread disease. Hence, in their opinion, the only way of averting these calamities is to put the king to death while he is still hale and hearty, in order that the divine spirit which he has inherited from his predecessors may be transmitted in turn by him to his successor, while is still in full vigour and has not yet been impaired by the weakness of disease in old age. In this connection, a particular symptom which is commonly said to seal the king's death warrant is highly significant, when he can no longer satisfy the passions of his numerous wives. In other words, when he has ceased, whether partially or wholly, to be able to reproduce his kind, it is time for him to die and to make room for a more vigorous successor. Taken along with the other reasons which are alleged for putting the king to death, this only suggests that the fertility of men, of cattle, and of the crops is believed to depend sympathetically on the generative power of the king, so that the complete failure of that power in him would involve a corresponding failure in men, animals, and plants, and would thereby entail at no distant date the entire extinction 
of all life, whether human, animal, or vegetable. No wonder that with such a danger before their eyes, the Shilluk should be most careful not to let the king die, what we should call natural death of sickness or old age. It is characteristic of their attitude towards the death of the king, that they refrain from speaking of it as death. They do not say that a king has died, but simply that he has gone away, like his divine ancestors Nayakang and Dag, the two first kings of the dynasty, both of whom are reported not to have died, but to have disappeared. The similar legends of the mysterious disappearance of early kings in other lands, for example, at Rome and in Uganda, may well point to a similar custom of putting them to death for the purpose of preserving their life. Parallel between the Shilla kings and the king of the wooden Nemi. On the whole, the theory and practice of the divine kings of the Shilla correspond very nearly to the theory and practice of the priests of Nemi. The kings of the wood, if in my view of the latter is correct, in both we see a series of divine kings on whose life the fertility of men, of cattle, and of vegetation is believed to depend, and who are put to death, whether in single combat or otherwise, in order that the divine spirit may be transmitted to their successors in full vigour, uncontaminated by the weakness and decay of sickness or old age, because any such degeneration on the part of the king would, in the opinion of his worshippers, entail a corresponding degeneration on mankind, on cattle, and on crops. Some points in this explanation are the custom of putting divine kings to death, particularly the method of transmitting the divine souls to their successors, will be dealt with more fully in the sequel. Meantime, we pass to other examples of the general practice. The Dinka of the Upper Nile The Dinka are egg-congeries of independent tribes in the valley of the White Nile, whose territory lie mostly on the eastern bank of the river and stretching from the 6th to the 12th degree of north latitude, has been estimated to comprise between 60 and 70,000 square miles. They are tall, long-legged people, rather slender than fat, with curly hair and a complexion of the deepest black. Though ill-fed, they are strong and healthy, and in general reach a great age. The nation embraces a number of independent tribes, and each tribe is mainly composed of the owners of cattle. For the Dingo are essentially a pastoral people, passionately devoted to the care of their numerous herds of oxen, though they also keep sheep and goats, and the women cultivate small quantities of millet, dura, and sesame. The tribes have no political union. Each village forms a separate community, pastorates herds together in the same grassland. With the change of the seasons, the people migrate with their flocks and herds to and from the banks of the Nile. In summer, when the plains near the great river are converted into swamps and covered with clouds and mosquitoes, the herdsmen and their families drive their beasts to the higher land of the interior, where the animals find firm ground, abundant fodder, and pools of water which to slake their thirst in the fever of the noonday heat. Here in the clearings of the forest, the community takes up its abode, each family dwelling by itself in one or more conical huts enclosed by a strong fence of stakes and thorn bushes. It is in the patches of open ground about these dwellings that the women grow their scanty crops of millet and sesame. The mode of tillage is rude. The stumps of the trees which have been felled are left standing to a height of several feet. The ground is hacked by the help of a tool between a hoe and a spade and the weeds are uprooted with the hand. Such as it is, the crop is exposed to the ravages of apes and elephants by night and of birds by day. The hungry blacks do not always wait till the corn is ripe, feeding much of it while the ears are still green. The cattle are kept in separate parks, muras, away from the villages. It is in the season of the summer rains that the Dinka are most happy and prosperous, and the cattle find sweet grass, plentiful water, coolness and shade in the forest, and the people subsist in comfort on the milk of their flocks and herds, supplementing it with the millet which they reap and the wild fruits which they gather in the forest. Then they brew a native beer. Then they marry and dance by night under the bright moon of the serene tropical sky. But in autumn, a great change passes over the life of the community. When October has come, the rains are over, the grass the pasture is eaten down withered, the pools are dry, Thirst compels a whole village, with its lowing herds and bleating flocks, to migrate to the neighbourhood of the river. Now begins a time of privation and suffering. There is no grass for the cattle, save in some marshy spots, where the herdsman must fight his rivals in order to win a meagre supply of fodder for his starving beasts. 
There is no milk for the people, no fruits on the trees, except a bit of sort of acorns, from which a miserable flower is ground to stay the pangs of hunger. The lean and famished natives are driven to fish in the river for the tubers of water lilies, to grub them in the earth for roots, to boil the leaves of trees, and last resource to drink the blood drawn from the necks of the wretched cattle. The gaunt appearance of the people at the season fills the behold with horror. The herds are decimated by famine, but even more beasts perish by dysentery and other diseases when the first rain causes the fresh grass to sprout. Denegdit, the supreme being of the Dinka. It is no wonder that the rain, which the Dinka are so manifestly dependent for their subsistence, should play a great part in their religion and superstition. They worship a supreme being whose name of Dengdit means literally great rain. It was he who created the world and established the present order of things, and it is he who sends down the rain from the rain place, his home in the upper regions of the air. Totemism of the Dinka But according to the Neo Dinka, this great being was once incarnated in human form. Born of a woman who descended from the sky, he became the ancestor of a clan which has the rain for its totem. For the recent researches of Dr. C.G. Seligman have proved that every Dinka tribe is divided into a number of clans, each of which reverts as its totem a species of animals or plants or other natural objects such as rain or fire. Animal totems seem to be the commonest. Among them are the lion, the elephant, the crocodile, the hippopotamus, the fox, the hyena, and a species of small birds called a mower, clouds of which infest the cornfields and do great damage to the crops. Each clan speaks of its totemic animal or plant as its ancestor and refrains from injuring and eating it. Men of the crocodile clan, for example, call themselves brothers of the crocodile and will neither kill nor eat the animal. Indeed, they would not even eat out of any vessel which has held crocodile flesh. And as they do not injure crocodiles, so they imagine that their crocodile kinsfolk will not injure them. Hence, men of this clan swim freely in the river, even by night, without fear of being attacked by the dangerous reptiles. And when the totem is a carnivorous animal, members of the clan may propitiate it by killing sheep and throwing out the flesh to be devoured by their animal brethren, either on the outskirts of the village or in the river. Members of the small bird, Amur, clan, perform ceremonies to prevent the birds from injuring the crops. The relationship between a clan and its animal ancestor or totem is commonly explained by a legend, that in the beginning an ancestress gave birth to twins, one of whom was a totemic animal and the other the human ancestor. Like most totemic clans, the clan of the Dinka are exogamous. That is, no man may worry a woman of his own clan. The descent of the clans is in the paternal line. In other words, every man and woman belongs to his or her father's clan, not to that of his or her mother. But the rain clan of the Neo Dinka, as for its ancestor, as we have seen, the supreme god himself, who deigned to be born of a woman, and who lived for a long time among men, ruling over them till at last he grew very old and disappeared appropriately, like Romulus, in a great storm of rain. Shrines erected in his honour appear to be scattered all over the Dinka country, and offerings are made at them. Rainmakers among the Dinka Perhaps without being unduly rash, we may conjecture that the great god of the Dinka, who gives them the rain, was indeed what tradition represents him as having been a man among men, in fact a human rainmaker, who made his death the supposition of his fellows promoted to the rank of a deity above the clouds. Be that as it may, the human rainmaker, Bain, is a very important personage among the Dinka to this day. Indeed, the men in authority whom travellers dub chiefs or Sikhs are in fact the actual potential rainmakers of the tribal community. Each of them is believed to be animated by the spirit of a great rainmaker, which has come down to him through a succession of rainmakers. And in virtue of this inspiration, a successful rainmaker enjoys very great power as consulted on all important matters. For example, in the Boer tribe of Dinka, at the present time, there is an old but active rainmaker named Beoradit, who is reputed to have imminent in him a great and powerful spirit called Lerpio, and by reason of this reputation, he exercises immense influence over all the Dinka of the Boer and Tain tribes. While the mighty spirit Lerpio is supposed to be embodied in the rainmaker, it is also thought to inhabit a certain hut which serves as a shrine. 
in front of the hut stands a post to which are fastened the hordes of many bullocks that have been sacrificed to lepio in the hut is kept a very sacred spear which bears the name of lepio and said to have fallen from heaven six generations ago as fallen stars are also called lepio we may suspect that an intimate connection is supposed to exist between meteorites and the spirit which animates the rainmaker nor would such connections seem unnatural on the savage who observes that meteorites and rain alike descend from the sky in spring about the month of april when the new moon is a few days old a sacrifice of bullocks is offered to lepure for the purpose of inducing him to move dangadit the great heavenly rainmaker to send down rain on the parched and thirsty earth two bullocks are led twice round the shrine afterwards tied by the rainmaker to the post in front of it then the drums beat and the people old and young men and women dance around the shrine and sing while the beasts are being sacrificed the pure ancestor we have brought you a sacrifice be pleased to cause rain to fall the blood of the bullocks is collected in a gourd boiled in a pot on the fire and eaten by the old and important people of the clan the horns of the animals are attached to the post in front of the shrine dinka rainmaker is not allowed to die a natural death in spite or rather in virtue of the high honour in which he is held no dinka rainmaker is allowed to die a natural death of sickness or old age for the dinka believe that if such an untoward event were to happen the tribe would suffer from disease and famine and the herds would not yield their increase so when a rainmaker feels that he is growing old and infirm he tells his children that he wishes to die among the yegar dinka a large grave is dug and the rainmaker lies down in it on his side with his head resting on a skin he is surrounded by his friends and relatives including his younger children but his older children are not allowed to approach the grave lest in their grief and despair they should do themselves a bodily injury for many hours generally for more than a day the rainmaker lies without eating or drinking from time to time he speaks to the people recalling the past history of the tribe reminding them how he has ruled and advised them and instructed them how they are to act in the future then when he has concluded his admonition he tells them that it is finished and bids them cover him up so the earth is thrown down on him as he lies in the grave and he soon dies of suffocation such with minor variations appears to be the regular end of the honourable career of a rainmaker in all the dinka tribes the cora dinka told dr Seligman that when they have dug the grave for their rainmaker they strangle him in his house the father and maternal uncle of one of Dr. Seligman's informants had both been rainmakers, and both had been killed in the most regular and orthodox fashion. Even if a rainmaker is quite young, he will be put to death should he seem likely to perish of disease. Further, every precaution is taken to prevent a rainmaker from dying an accidental death. For such an end, though not nearly as serious as a matter of death from illness or old age, would be sure to entail sickness on the tribe. As soon as a rainmaker is killed, his valuable spirit is supposed to pass to a suitable successor, whether a son or other near blood relation. Kings put to death in Anyoro and other parts of Africa. In the central African kingdom of Anyoro, down to recent years, custom required that as soon as the king fell seriously ill or began to break up from age, he should die by his own hand. For, according to an old prophecy, the throne would pass away from the dynasty if ever the king were to die a natural death. He killed himself by draining a poisoned cup. If he faltered or were too ill to ask for the cup, it was his wife's duty to administer the poison. When the king of Kibanga, on the upper Congo, seems near his end, the sorcerers put a rope round his neck, which they draw gradually tighter till he dies. If the king of Jingero happens to be wounded in war, he is put to death by his comrades if they fail to kill him by his kinsfolk however hard he may beg for mercy they say they do it that he may not die by the hands of his enemies the jukos are a heathen tribe of the benu river a great tributary of the niger in their country the town of gatsri is ruled by a king who is elected by the big men of the town as follows when in the opinion of the big men the king has reigned long enough they give out that the king is sick a formula understood by all to mean that they are going to kill him though the intention is never put more plainly they then decide who is to be the next king how long he is to reign is settled by the influential men at a meeting the question is put and answered by each man 
throwing on the ground a little piece of stick for each year he thinks the new king should rule. The king is then told, and a great feast prepared, at which the king gets drunk on guinea corn beer. After that he is speared, and the man who is chosen becomes king. Thus each Jugo king knows that he cannot have many more years to live, and that he is certain of his predecessor's fate. This, however, does not seem to frighten candidates. The same custom of king killing is said to prevail at Kwande and Ukari, as well as at Gatri. In the three Hosa kingdoms of Gobir, Gatsina, and Delrua, in northern Nigeria, as soon as a king showed signs of failing health or growing infirmity, an official bore the title of killer of the elephant Kare Gewa, appeared and throttled him by holding his windpipe. The king-elect was afterwards conducted to the centre of the town, called Head of the Elephant, Kangiwa, where he was made to lie down on a bed. Then a black ox was slaughtered and his blood allowed to pour all over his body. Next the ox was flayed, and the remains of the dead king, which had been disemboweled and smoked for seven days over a slow fire, were wrapped up in the hide and dragged along the ground to the place of burial, where they were interred in a circular pit. After his bath of ox blood, the new king had to remain for seven days in his mother's house, undergoing ablutions daily. On the eighth day, he was conducted in state to his palace. In the kingdom of Dura, the new monarch had, moreover, to step over the corpse of his predecessor. The Matiamvo of Angola The Matiamvo is a great king or emperor in the interior of Angola. One of the inferior kings of the country, by name Chala, gave to a Portuguese exhibition the following account of the manner in which the Matiamvo comes by his end. It has been customary, he said, for our Matiamvos to die either in war or by a violent death. And the present Matiamvo must meet this last fate, as in consequence of his great exactions, he has lived long enough. When we come to this understanding and decide that he should be killed, we invite him to make war with our enemies on which occasion we all accompany him and his family into the war when we lose some of our people. If he escapes unhurt, we return to the war again and fight for three or four days. We then suddenly abandon him and his family to their fate, leaving him in the enemy's hands. Seeing himself thus deserted, he causes his throne to be erected, and sitting down, calls his family round him. He then orders his mother to approach. She kneels at his feet. He first cuts off her head, then decapitates his sons in succession. Next, his wives and relatives, and last of all, his most beloved wife, called Anakolo. This slaughter being accomplished, the Matiangvo, dressed in all his pomp, awaits his own death, which immediately follows by an officer sent by the powerful neighbouring chiefs, Kenekuna and Kanika. This officer first cuts off his legs and arms at the joints, and lastly he cuts off his head, after which the head of the officer is struck off. All the potentates retire from the encampment in order not to witness his death. It is my duty to remain and witness his death, and to mark the place where his head and arms have been deposited by the two great chiefs, the enemies of their Matiamvo. They also take possession of all the property belonging to the deceased monarch and his family, which they convey to their own residence. I then provide for the funeral of the mutilated remains of the late Matiamvo, after which I retire to his capital and proclaim the new government. I then return to where the head, legs, and arms have been deposited, and for forty slayers I ransom them, together with merchandise and other property belonging to the deceased, which I give up to the new Matiamvo, who has been proclaimed. This is what has happened to many Matiamvos, and what must happen to the present one. Zulu kings put to death on the approach of old age. It appears to have been a Zulu custom to put the king to death as soon as he began to have wrinkles or grey hairs. At least this seems implied in the following passage, written by one who resided for some time at the court of the notorious Zulu tyrant, Chaka, in the early part of the 19th century. The extraordinary violence of the king's rage with me was mainly occasioned by that absurd nostrum, the hair oil, with the notion of which Mr. Farwell had impressed him as being a specific for removing all indications of age. From the first moment of his having heard that such a preparation was attainable, he invinced the solicitude to procure it, and on every occasion never forgot to remind us of his anxiety respecting it. More especially on our departure on the mission, his injunctions were particularly directed to this object. It will be seen that as one of the barbarous customs of the Zulas, in their choice or election of their kings, 
then he must neither have wrinkles nor grey hairs, as they are both distinguishing marks of disqualification for becoming a monarch of a warlike people. It is also equally indispensable that their king should never exhibit those proofs of having become unfit and incompetent to reign. It is therefore important that they should conceal these indications so long as they possibly can. Chaka had become greatly apprehensive of the approach of grey hairs, which would at once be the signal for him to prepare to make his exit from this sublunary world, it being always followed by the death of the monarch. The writer to whom we are indebted for this instructive anecdote of the hair oil admits to specify the mode on which the grey-haired and wrinkled Zulu chief used to make his elixir from this sublunary world. But on analogy, we may conjecture that he did so by the simple and perfectly sufficient process of being knocked on the head. Kings of Wallers put to death on account of bodily blemishes. The custom of putting kings to death as soon as they suffered from any personal defect prevailed two centuries ago in the Catholic kingdom of Sofuela, to the north of the present Zululand. We have seen that these kings of Sofuela, each of whom bore the official name of Quetiv, were regarded as gods by their people, being entreated to give rain or sunshine according as each might be wanted. Nevertheless, a slight bodily blemish, such as a loss of a tooth, was considered a sufficient cause for putting one of these godmen to death, as we learn from the following passage of an old Portuguese historian. It was formerly the custom of the kings of this land to commit suicide by taking poison when any disaster or natural physical defect fell upon them, such as impotence, infectious disease, the loss of their front teeth by which they were disfigured, or any other deformity or affliction. To put an end to such defects, they killed themselves, saying that the king should be free from any blemish. And if not, it was better for his honour that he should die and seek another life where he would be made whole, for there everything was perfect. But the creative who reigned when I was in those parts would not imitate his predecessors in this, being discreet and dreaded as he was. For having lost a front tooth, he caused it to be proclaimed throughout the kingdom that all should be aware that he had lost a tooth and should recognize him when they saw him without it. And if his predecessors killed themselves for such things, they were very foolish, and he would not do so. On the contrary, he would be very sorry when the time came for him to die a natural death, for his life was very necessary to preserve his kingdom and defend it from his enemies, and he recommended his successors to follow his example. The same historian tells us that near the kingdom of Quetiv is another of which Sedanda is king, the laws and customs of which are very similar to those of Quetiv, all these Kafirs being of the same nation, and these two kingdoms having formerly been one, as I shall relate hereafter. When I was in Sofala, it happened that King Sedenda was seized with a severe and contagious leprosy, and seeing that his complaint was incurable, having named the prince who was to succeed him, he took poison and died, according to the custom of those kings, when they are afflicted with any physical deformity. Kings required to be unblemished. The king of Sofala, who dared to survive the loss of his front tooth, was thus a bold reformer like Ergamenes, king of Ethiopia. We may conjecture that the ground for putting the Ethiopian kings to death was, as in the case of the Zulu and Sofala kings, the appearance on their person of any bodily defect or sign to decay, and that the oracle which the priests alleged as the authority for the royal execution was to the effect that great calamities would result from the reign of a king who had any blemish on his body, just as an oracle warns Sparta against a lame reign that is the reign of a lame king. It is some confirmation of this conjecture that the kings of Ethiopia were chosen for their size, strength, and beauty long before the custom of killing them was abolished. To this day the Sultan of Waday must have no obvious bodily defect, and the king of Angoni cannot be crowned if he has a single blemish, such as a broken or a filed tooth, or the scar of an old wound. According to the book of Achael, and many other authorities, no king who was afflicted with a personal blemish might reign over Ireland at Tara. Hence, when the great king Gornak Mac Art lost one eye by an accident, he had at once abdicated. It is only natural, therefore, to suppose, especially with the other African examples before us, that any bodily defect or symptom of old age appearing on the person of the Ethiopian monarch was the signal for his execution. Courtiers required to imitate their sovereign. At a later time it is recorded, 
either the king of ethiopia became maimed in any part of his body all his courtiers had to suffer the same mutilation by this rule may perhaps have been instituted at the time when the custom of killing the king for any personal defect was abolished instead of compelling the king to die because for example he had lost a tooth all his subjects would be obliged to lose a tooth and thus the invidious superiority of the subjects over the king would be cancelled a rule of this sort is still observed in the same region at the court of the sultans of darfur when the sultan coughs everyone makes a sound this by striking the tongue against the root of the upper teeth when he sneezes the whole assembly utters a sound like the cry of the checo when he falls off his horse all his followers must fall off likewise if any one of them remain in the saddle no matter how high his rank he is laid on the ground and beaten at the court of the king of uganda in central africa when the king laughs everyone laughs when he sneezes everyone sneezes when he has a cold everyone pretends to have a cold and when he has his hair cut so has everybody at the court of boni in celebes there's a rule that whatever the king does all the courtiers must do if he stands they stand if he sits they sit if he falls off his horse they fall off their horses if he bathes they bathe and passers-by must go into the water in the dress good or bad which they happen to have on when the emperor of china laughs the mandarins in attendance laugh also when he stops laughing they stop when he is sad their countenances are chop-fallen you would say that her faces are on strings and that the emperor can touch the springs and set them in motion of pleasure but to return to the death of the divine king many days journey to the northeast of abomi the old capital of dahomey lies the kingdom of ayo the ayos are governed by a king no less absolute than the king of dahomey yet subject to a regulation of state at once humiliating and extraordinary kings of ayo put to death when the people have convinced an opinion of his ill government which is sometimes insidiously infused into them by the artifice of his discontented ministers they sent a deputation to him with a present of parrot's eggs as a mark of its authenticity to represent to him that the burden of government must have so far fatigued him that they consider it full time for him to repose from his care and indulge himself with a little sleep he thanks his subjects for their attention to his ease retires to his own apartment as if to sleep and there gives directions to his women to strangle him this is immediately executed and his son quietly ascends the throne upon the usual terms of holding the reins of government no longer than whilst he merits the approbation of the people about the year seventeen seventy four a king of ayo whom his ministers attempted to remove in the customary manner positively refused to accept the preferred parrot's eggs at their hands telling them that he had no mind to take a nap but on the contrary was resolved to watch for the benefit of his subjects the ministers surprised and indignant at his recalcitricity raised a rebellion but were defeated with great slaughter and thus by his spirited conduct the king freed himself from the tyranny of his conciliators and established an now precedent for the guidance of his successors however the old custom seems to have revived and persisted until late in the nineteenth century for a catholic missionary writing in eighteen eighty four speaks of the practice if it was still in vogue another missionary writing in eighteen eighty one thus describes usage of the egbes and the yorubas of west africa among the customs of the country one of the most curious is unquestionably that of judging and punishing the king should he have earned the hatred of his people by exceeding his rights one of his counsellors on whom the heavy duty is laid requires the prince that he shall go to sleep which means simply to take poison and die if his courage fails him at the supreme moment a friend renders him this last service and quietly without betraying the secret they prepare the people for the news of the king's death in yoruba the thing is managed a little differently when a son is born to the king of oyo they make a model of the infant's right foot in clay and keep it in the house of the elders ogboni if the king fails to observe the customs of the country a messenger, without speaking a word shows him his child's foot the king knows what that means he takes poison and goes to sleep voluntary death by fire of the old prussian kirdawaydo the old prussians acknowledged as their supreme lord a ruler who governed them in the name of the gods and was known as god's mouth kirdawaydo when he felt himself weak and ill 
If he wished to leave a good name behind him, he had a great heap made of thorn bushes and straw, on which he mounted and delivered a long sermon to the people, exhorting them to serve the gods, and promising to go to the gods and speak for the people. Then he took some of the perpetual fire which burned in front of the holy oak tree, and lighting the pile with it, burned himself to death. Voluntary Deaths by Fire We need not doubt the truth of this last tradition. Fanaticism, with a mere love and notoriety, has led men in other ages and other lands to court death in the flames. Peregrinus at Olympia In antiquity, the Montbeg Peregrinus, after bidding for fame in the various characters of a Christian martyr, a shameless cynic, and a rebel against Rome, ended his disreputable and vainglorious career by publicly burning himself at the Olympic festival in the presence of a crowd of admirers and scoffers, among whom was a satirist Lucian. Buddhist Monks in China Buddhist monks in China sometimes seek to attain nirvana by the same method, the flame of their religious zeal being fanned by a belief that the merit of their death reclouds to the good of the whole community, while the praises which are showered upon them in their lives and the prospect of honours and worship which awaits them after death serve as additional incentives to suicide. The beautiful mountains of Tang Tai in the district of Tai Chao are, or were till lately, the scene of many such voluntary martyrdoms. The victims are monks who, weary of the vanities of earth, have withdrawn even from their monasteries and spent years alone in one or rather the hermitages which are scattered among the ravines and precipices of this wild and secluded region. Their fancy having been wrought and their resolution strung to the necessary pitch by a life of solitude and brooding contemplation, they announce their intention to fix the day of their departure from this world of shadows always choosing for their purpose a festival which draws a crowd of worshippers and pilgrims to one of the many monasteries of the district. Advertisements of the approaching solemnity are posted throughout the country, and believers are invited to attend and assist with matires with their prayers. From three to five monks are said thus to commit themselves to the flames every year at Tantay. They prepare by fasting and ablution for the last fiery trial of their faith. An upright chest containing a seat is placed in a brick furnace, and the space between the chest and the walls of the furnace is filled with fuel. The doomed man takes his seat in the chest. The door is shut on him and barred. Fire is applied to the combustibles and consumes a candidate for heaven. When all is over, the child remains erect together, worshipped and reverently buried in a dagoba or shrine destined for the preservation and worship of the relics of saints. The victims, it is said, are not always voluntary. In remote districts, unscrupulous priests have been known to stupefy a clerical brother with drugs and then burn him publicly, an unwilling matter as a means of spreading the renown of the monastery and thereby attracting the arms of the faithful. On the 28th of January, 1888, the Spiritual Hill Monastery, distant about a day's journey from the city of Wenchow, witnessed the voluntary death by fire of two monks who bore the euphonious names of perceptive intelligence and a fulgent glamour. Before they entered the furnaces, the spectators prayed them to become, after death, the spiritual guardians of the neighbourhood, to protect it from all evil influences, and to grant luck in trade, fine seasons, plentiful harvests, and every other blessing. The martyrs complacently promised to comply with these requests, and were thereupon worshipped as living Buddhas, while a stream of gifts poured into the coffers of the monastery. Among the Eskimos of Bering Strait, a shaman has been known to burn himself alive in the expectation of returning to life with much stronger powers than he had possessed before. Religious Suicides in Russia But the suicides by fire of Chinese Buddhists and Eskimo sorcerers has been far surpassed by the frenzies of Christian fanaticism. In the 17th century, the internal troubles of their unhappy country viewed in the dim light of prophecy, created a widespread belief among the Russian people that the end of the world was at hand and that the reign of Antichrist was about to begin. Belief in the approaching end of the world We know from scripture that the old servant, which is the devil, has been or will be shut up under lock and key for a thousand years, and the number of the beast is 666. A simple mathematical calculation based on these irrefragable data pointed to the year 1666 as the date when the final consummation of all things and the arrival of the beast in question might be confidently anticipated. When the year came and went, and still, 
To the general surprise, the animal failed to put in its appearance. The calculations were revised. It was discovered that an error had crept into them, and the world was respited for another thirty-three years. But their opinions differed as to the precise date of the catastrophe. The peers were unanimous in their conviction of its proximity. Accordingly, some of them ceased to till their fields, abandoned their houses, and on certain nights of the year expected the sound of the last trump in coffins, which they took the precaution of closing, lest their senses, or what remained of them, should be overpowered by the awful vision of the judgment day. Epidemic of Suicide It would have been well if the delusion of their disordered intellects had stopped there. Unhappily, in many cases it went much further, and suicide, universal suicide, was preached by fervent missionaries as the only means to escape the snares of Antichrist and to pass from the sins and sorrows of this fleeting world to the eternal joys of heaven. Whole communities hailed with enthusiasm the gospel of death and hastened to put its precepts in practice. An epidemic of suicide raged throughout northern and northeastern Russia. Suicide by Starvation At first, a favourite mode of death was by starvation. In the forest of Vetluga, for example, an old man founded an establishment for the use of religious suicides. It was a building without doors and windows. The aspirants to heaven were lowered into it through a hole in the roof. The hatch was battered down on them, and men armed with clubs patrolled the outer walls to prevent the prisoners from escaping. Hundreds of persons thus died a lingering death. At first the sounds of devotion issued from the walls, but as time went on these were replaced by entreaties for food, prayers for mercy, and finally imprecautions on the miscreant who had lured these misguided beings to destruction and the parents who had brought them into the world to suffer such exquisite torments. Thus death by famine was attended by some obvious disadvantages. It was slow, it opened the door to repentance, it occasionally admitted of rescue. Suicide by fire Accordingly, death by fire was preferred as surer and more expeditious. Priests, monks and laymen scoured the villages and hamlets, preaching salvation by the flames, some of them decked in the spoils of their victims. For the motives of the preachers were often of the basest sort. They did not spare even the children, but seduced them by promise of the gay cloves, the apples, the nuts, the honey they would enjoy in heaven. Sometimes when the people hesitated, these infamous wretches decided the wavering minds of their dupes by a false report that the troops were coming to deliver them up to Antichrist, and so to rob them of a blissful eternity. Then men, women, and children rushed into the flames. Sometimes hundreds and even thousands thus perished together. An area was enclosed by barricades. Fear was heaped up in it. The victims huddled together, fire set to the hole, and the sacrifice consummated. Any who in their agony sought to escape were driven or thrown back into the flames, sometimes by their own relations. These sinister fires generally blazed the night, reddening the sky till daybreak. In the morning nothing remained but charred bodies gnawed by prowling dogs, but the stench of burnt human flesh poisoned the air for days afterwards. A Jewish Messiah as the Christians expected the arrival of the Antichrist in the year 1666, so the Jews cheerfully anticipated the long-delayed advent of their Messiah in the same fateful year. A Jew of Smyrna, by name Sabetisevi, availed himself of this general expectation to pose as a Messiah in person. He was greeted with enthusiasm. Jews from many parts of Europe hastened to pay their homages and, what was still better, their money to the future deliverer of his country, who in return passed out among them, with the greatest liberality, estates in the Holy Land which not belong to him. But the alternative of death by impalement or conversion to Mohammedism, which the Sultan submitted to his consideration, induced him to revise his theological opinions, and on looking to the matter more closely, he discovered that his true mission in life was to preach the total abolition of the Jewish religion and the substitution for it of Islam.